0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Conferences for Women. On March 14th, tens of thousands will come together in one digital space for a national gathering of women supporting women. Register now and gain access to experts on career advancement, leadership, and personal development. maconferenceforwomen.org slash national dash conference. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. 22-year-old Odalis
1: Garcia was on the second day of her new job at Ecuador Station TC Television when, on January 9th, the unthinkable happened. It was around 2,
2: 2 2.05 in the afternoon. I had just finished sending my notes for the afternoon news. Suddenly I heard one of my colleagues yelling from outside. They got in. They got in. Hide.
1: Heavily armed men had broken into the TC television's headquarters in the coastal city of Guayaquil, in the middle of a live news broadcast.
3: I was in shock. I heard shots, screams,
2: and I thought, where am I going to hide? What do I do? There was an office behind me, so I ran and hid under the desk. But I left the light on and didn't close the door. So I thought, shoot, they're going to find me.
1: Odalise crept to one of the office bathrooms, where she found two of her co-workers already hiding from the intruders. The men were pacing the hallways with their guns.
2: There was a noise from where we were hiding. And they said, there are more here, there are more here, there are more here. We decided that they're going to find us and we need to leave. Because our fear was that as we were hiding in the bathroom, They were going to shoot at the door. We were afraid of that and decided it was better to leave. So we left, and they were right outside the bathroom
1: door. One of the men grabbed Odalise by the collar the moment she stepped out of the bathroom. He pointed a gun at her. The men led her and her co-workers to a different room and forced them to kneel on the floor. The guns pointed at their heads. The attackers were also wearing explosives. And that's when Odalys realized what could happen.
3: The
2: truth is, is we are actually in the situation. They're going to kill us because the order they had was that if the police came in, they would kill us. They were being directed by a person on a video call who told them, "Do not let the police in. If the
1: police come in, kill them." The attack at TC Television was being broadcast live across Ecuador. On air, viewers heard one of the attackers asking to be wired up with a microphone to send a message. He said he wanted to show the consequences of, quote, messing with the mafias. Odalis says amid the chaos, a handful of men took her to a secluded booth.
2: Two of them started frantically touching me and kissing me. I was just so scared. And I was crying and I told them, seriously, do what you want to me, but just don't kill me.
1: She was held hostage for about an hour. Finally, Odalise and her co-workers were rescued by the police. Thirteen men were detained and charged with terrorism. The organized attack on TC television is part of a wave of escalating violence in Ecuador. For decades, the country was amongst the least violent countries in Latin America. Now, it has the region's fourth highest homicide rate. That drastic change is driven by the combined forces of the nation's powerful gangs and the global drug trade. Ecuador's president, Daniel Noboa, has called the gangs terrorists. The TV station raid was just one of a series of violent attacks in Ecuador. Noboa has declared a state of emergency. Odalis Garcia, the TV, TC television production assistant, took some time away from work. But this week, she was able to go back to the office.
2: When I walked through the hallways, I saw all of the scenes, and when it was time, when it all happened, I said, this is what time it was, and when they got in. This is the time when it all happened. I was feeling the weight of, like, this could happen again, and I listened, and I could imagine the screams, the shots from that day
1: there are now armed guards standing outside the station entrance. But Odeliz still can't shake the feeling that the attackers could come back. There can
2: be thousands of police outside, but who knows how many? Or whether more people will come, but twice as many. It's like, okay, the police are here, but I still don't feel safe.
1: Odeliz Garcia's vulnerability is real. President Noboa has ordered the military to, quote, neutralize 22 armed groups in Ecuador, essentially a war against the gangs. The gangs immediately took that war back to the Ecuadorian state. Just yesterday, Cesar Suarez was assassinated in Guayaquil. He was shot multiple times while driving to a court hearing. Suarez was the prosecutor investigating the attack on TC television. Police have not yet determined who murdered him. So what exactly is happening in Ecuador and why? Well, Talia Ponce is a journalist in Guayaquil, Ecuador. She's also founder of Indomita Media. She collaborates frequently with The New York Times as well, and she joins us. Talia, welcome to On Point.
4: Hi, Magna. I am glad to be here today to discuss this important topic. Thank you.
1: Well, you're in Guayaquil. You're from there. Uh, this assassination happened just yesterday. Can you first describe uh, how it feels to be in the city right now?
4: Yeah, I think that um, being in Guayaquil, like since three years ago, is very scary. We all feel that we can be victims of anything, you know, like anytime when we go out to the streets. When we, we lived what happened um, last week, In in Testa Television, I think that it was maybe a turning point because people were like very, very scared and 11 people died that that day. Now we are somehow going back to normality in the streets, but it's because we kind of um, got used to live, like surviving.
1: Mm. Now, the shock of that television station attack, was that... I mean, was that partly because it was so bold? Had the gangs done anything that bold before?
4: Yeah, I think it it was very, very bold. Um, For me, for example, it impacted um, in in two levels because uh, one of my best friends, she was being held hostage, you know, Mm. and seeing her... um, in that way, it was shocking, but also as a journalist, it hits different, you know, because you know that you are being, you are exposed with your work. And I think that we never imagined um, as citizens that something like this could happen. Seeing armed uh, men taking like a live broadcast, uh, it, it was a very, very different, you know, and it's the biggest channel in Ecuador. So it definitely sends a message.
1: Oh. How powerful are uh, these armed group, groups, gangs, or cartels in Ecuador?
4: Um, I, I think that that it can be answered with what happened uh, last week that mm-hmm. actually un, unleashed everything with what we are seeing. You know, um, Ecuador's attorney general, Diana Salazar, she exposed an investigation that had been held by her office. This is called uh, caso metastasis. And... It revealed narco-corruption in the highest levels of the government, including judges, prosecutors, and other officials. And this shows how gangs are corrupting everything in the system. And they have the power not only in the streets, but also inside the jails that work as centers of operation for criminal uh, gangs and organized crime.
1: And so then what happened?
4: Well, when, when this um, case was was revealed, um, this kind of put a pressure on Noboa's government that, as we know, is new. Mm-hmm. And he announced some changes uh, that, that were going to take place. These changes included uh, transferring several powerful gang leaders to a maximum security facility, but the plan was leaked. And then uh, Adolfo Macias, that's known as FIDO, Fito, he's the leader of a gang uh, called uh, Los Choneros, which is currently the most powerful gang in Ecuador, he went missing. He escaped from prison. And then another kingpin, uh, Fabricio Colompico from the gang Los Lobos, escaped too, just three days after being captured.
1: Mm. Okay, so let's focus on Macias, or, or quote-unquote Fito, as he's known, as you said. Uh, the pr- So the, pr- the transfer to a high-security facility... Um, was done for the reasons you said, but I want to talk about where he was being transferred from, because it doesn't seem at all like the prison he was in was a prison for him, right? I mean, he was running the cartel's business from there.
4: Yeah, of course. Uh, He was held in a literal penitentiary. It's the biggest jail in here in Ecuador, but it's not a maximum security facility. And he was kind of the Lord there. Uh, some inmates have uh, talked to the press and they have uh, tell us that inside the jail, for example, he had a uh, luxury, uh, for example, luxurious mattress and a refrigerator and, you know, uh, every kind of facilities. And he was living like a lord inside the jail.
1: Mm. I see that uh, he also had a pool constructed at that prison. His girlfriend came for a week, um, and he was in such control of the prison that uh, at one time he even had, uh, he welcomed cameras in and um, was featured in a professional music video from prison. I mean, did, did, uh, did the Ecuadorian... Law enforcement there have any control uh, over the facility, or was it essentially run by Macias and his fellow gang members?
4: Yeah, I think that this all of this that you've said show that effectively there's no no like law force inside the jails. Um, There's like, um, in theory, you know, we have a a service that supposedly controls uh, the penitentiary system but in the reality it doesn't happen. Uh, We have, we've seen that um, each jail has like uh, a different kingpin or or leader and inside the jails also the the wings have like different leaderships of different gangs.
0: Mm.
1: Well, Talia Ponce joins us today. She's in Guayaquil, Ecuador. She's founder of Indomita Media. We'll talk a lot more about what's happening to Ecuador and the Ecuadorian people when we come back. This is on point. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Megna Chakrabarti, and today we are trying to understand what is going on in Ecuador with the massive surge of gang violence there and the spectacular attacks on not only a television station, but on Ecuadorian officials just over the past couple of weeks. Talia Ponce joins us today. She's the founder of Indomita Media in Ecuador and also a collaborator with The New York Times. Talia, uh, right now, the entire nation of Ecuador is under uh, a curfew, essentially, between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., what other changes um, are the people of Ecuador having to experience because of this surge in terrible violence?
4: I think that mainly what we're seeing is the military action in prisons, but also in the streets, and that feels very different, you know, in in daily life.
1: Okay. So, but tell me, tell me more more about that. How visible are the police, uh, etc.?
4: Yeah, we're seeing like police and military operations in the streets, uh, but I think that it's very important to mention that even though this has been praised by the majority of the population, that they're even giving like food donations to the militaries, to the military officers, because they are like saying... Their job is essential, even though they have like a salary, you know, it has also raised concerns on human rights matters. We've mm-hmm. seen these days in social media, for example, videos of military officers making fun of people in the streets, uh, mainly impoverished people. Uh, we also saw uh, two men that uh, were naked in in a motorcycle because some officers took uh, The clothes from them you Mm -hmm. know because they they were past the curfew but instead of uh, detaining them they take the clothes from them and they were naked and people were laughing of this as it it was fun and what also is concerning is that it could be some racial profiling in the streets you know
1: Mm -hmm. okay well in just a moment uh we're going to talk about how the gangs in Ecuador became so powerful, uh, the drug trade being a major factor. But Talia, I also understand that since so many gang members were or are in prison, um, and those prisons, as we talked about, were essentially run by the kingpins kingpins of those gangs, there was another source of money for them, essentially, that they were extorting their fellow prisoners?
4: Yeah, yeah, this is true. Um... There's actually um, a a kind of fee that someone has to pay when going inside the jail. Even though you are in jail for minor crimes, you know, you have to first join to the gang that leads the, the wing you are assigned to. And secondly, you have to pay for your life, basically, for your life, for your protection and to have access to... Basic services, just as having a meal, you know, because they control everything. And who are paying for this are the families of the inmates from outside the prisons.
1: Mm. Well, Talia, there's one more question I want to ask because we're, you know, we've been focusing on the prisons, but there have been mm-hmm. man, many other events, uh, yeah, beyond the uh, even beyond the, the television station takeover that have been happening explosions, uh other uh, people being taken hostages a surge in crime overall it, can we attribute all of that to the gangs or is there another factor we should be thinking of
4: yeah the thing is that actually uh, nowadays we can't uh, talk like about gangs without mentioning the the link they have uh, with organized crime gangs as as it used to be for example um past years, we saw, you know, robberies in the streets, but they were like not related to this. Nowadays, all the gangs in the street respond to organized crime gangs. And these gangs, at the same time, are linked to international drug cartels, such as Jalisco Nueva Generacion and Cartel de Sinaloa from Mexico, you know. And there is also the presence in Ecuador of international organized crime like the Albanian mafia. So. Everything is corrupted, as I said before.
1: Mm, Okay. Will Talia stand by for just a moment because I want to bring Will Freeman into the show. He's a fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Will Freeman, welcome to On Point.
5: Hi, Magna. Thanks for having me on.
1: I want to hear from both of you about how Ecuador got to this place, this place of terror, essentially, it's been experiencing over the past several weeks. Because as I said in the beginning of the show, uh, at one time, Ecuador was considered the most peaceful or one of the most peaceful of the Latin American states. Can you take us back to that time? How did ecuador Ecuador achieve that um that period of peace?
5: Well, mm-hmm. Ecuador uh, it sits between Colombia and Peru, mm-hmm. two of the the two biggest coca cocaine producers in the world. So really, it was surprising, as you mentioned, that it was a country with relatively low homicide rates, but it did not have a large insurgency or or rebel movement in the 20th century. It had a military dictatorship, but it wasn't as brutal as some of uh, the neighboring countries' dictatorships. And then after that period, under democracy in the 80s, 90s, uh, even 2000s, Ecuador became a transit country for drugs from uh, Colombia and Peru, uh, but essentially drug trafficking in Ecuador was controlled during that time by the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a decades-old Marxist uh, rebel movement uh, which made a lot of its money off of drug trafficking and essentially uh, held a monopoly in Ecuador. They worked with local gangs, but essentially they were the top bosses, uh, and the government for the most part of Ecuador stayed out of the way.
1: So then, well, actually, Talia, let me turn back to you first and, and um, hear what you have to say about that, about that shift from relatively peaceful times under the military dictatorship to what you're seeing now. What more would you like to add to that?
4: Yeah, I think that there's also a turning point that is not always mentioned. And I think that the pandemic showed a lot of state presence, you know, a total abandonment um uh, and this added to what Will said, you know, because it it exposed how the state in Ecuador is not working and how Ecuador was not only geographically strategic but also political strategic for these operations.
1: Mm. Okay, so I want to um, dig into a little bit more to the the transnational drug trade here, because so Will, to be clear, um, was Ecuador was a transit nation. For cocaine, or was there any actually grown natively in Ecuador?
5: No, it was a transit country during these years. And as I mentioned, it's not that organized crime was absent from Ecuador uh, during these years of relative peace. It's that there wasn't much competition over the drug trafficking routes or over the ports. Uh, Now during these years, 80s, 90s, 2000s, most cocaine was also flowing north to the United States uh, from Colombia on small planes or through the ports of Ecuador but through small vessels. Now uh, in the 2010s, you start to get much more demand for cocaine and especially recently in Europe and Asia and parts of the Middle East. It's made the cocaine trade really a global phenomenon. Uh, And that's converted ports in South America into very lucrative assets because more and more you need to rely on smuggling cocaine in uh, big shipping vessels, in containers. Uh, So I think that's where you start to see Ecuador become a more valuable piece of turf in this entire scheme of global uh, drug trafficking and where you start to see really intense competition among local groups and also among uh, some of the transnational groups earlier mentioned for control of uh, of Ecuadorian territory and um, and the ports of the country.
1: Mm, I see. So as you as you point out, the global nature of this is an important piece of the puzzle because I think you said before that uh, what in the past year or so in the European Union, um, uh, what it was, it Turkey and. Uh, well, not Turkey, not an official EU country, but uh, the governments of Turkey and Norway seized what? Four times the volume of cocaine they that they had seized in 2016?
5: Uh, so it was the EU member states, Norway, and Turkey all together okay. uh, seized quadruple the volume of cocaine uh, that they had seized in 2016.
1: I see. So those three groups—that is That's a huge right. growth. I, I want to step back to Colombia also for a moment mm-hmm. here, because you mentioned that uh, it, uh, the the transit of drugs through mm-hmm. Ecuador was largely controlled by FARC. Does the does FARC's uh, the end of FARC's war with Colombia uh, and the Relatively greater stab- stabilization of of politics and peace in Colombia have had anything to do with the the increase in violence in Ecuador? If FARC wasn't controlling um, so much of the the trafficking anymore,
5: absolutely. I think this is the most tragic illustration of the idea that no good deed goes unpunished. In 2016, the Colombian state uh, managed to finally sign peace accords with FARC, uh, demobilizing the vast majority of that group's fighters bringing this unprecedented era of peace to Colombia after 50, 60 years of uh, of constant internal armed conflict. But uh, first of all, some of the FARC fronts, especially in the south of the country, didn't put down their weapons. They didn't agree to the deal, and they continued pumping cocaine into Ecuador. Uh, and also those groups, now they no longer had uh, really any burden on them to support the rest of the organization. They could retool as full-time drug trafficking Outfits. Uh, So you saw increasing volumes of cocaine going through Ecuador instead of Colombia, which was ever more stable, where there was ever more uh, state control in certain parts of the country. Um, And Ecuador really became this new important trafficking route for these Colombian uh, drug cartels. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, alongside that, you saw the rise of also important Ecuadorian uh, gangs and and drug trafficking organizations in their own rights, as um, they were no longer just the junior partners to the all-powerful FARC. Instead, they were something more like equal business partners in this relationship. Uh, and increasingly had a lot to gain from this more and more uh, profitable trade.
1: Mm. Well, Talia, the presumption is that uh, it is at least more difficult for uh, gangs and the drug trade to really take root in a country if the nation itself has strong institutions, right, to control, uh, you know, narco trafficking and, uh, and cartel based crime. What, can you give me a sense of the the strength of ecuador's political institutions as the uh, the the power of the local the ecuadorian gangs grew
4: yeah i, I think that um, this is something that the government and the authorities did not foresee and that like shows the the weakness of of the government. There are not public policies that respond to this problematic. And I think there was like an underestimation of the situation. And actually, in during the government of Lenin Moreno, there was a major change on how the penitentiary system was um, controlled. It used to be under the administration of uh, Ministry of Justice, but then it passed to be under like the control of a service, the, the, the service of, of the penitentiary. So I think that um, evidently it, it was like symbolic, you know, how it um, weakened like the, um, the power of the state on, on the system and i also think that the the corruption of of the the, the state uh, officers also shows how the government is not like working on uh. prevention for example and I, I think this is very important last year the us announced the withdrawal of visas from what they called narco-generals, because in their investigation they had proof of how officers from the police were linked to to organized crime.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, on that point, I want to play some of what uh, Ecuador's attorney general and the Ecuadorian president, Noboa, have said um, recently about the corruption within Ecuador's government. Uh, this just follows on from what you were talking about in the first segment, Talia. Um, so first of all, here's Ecuadorian Attorney General Diana, uh, sorry, Diana Salazar in a video that her office made talking about her corruption crackdown case. As uh, Talia mentioned earlier, it's called Caso Mestas Metastases, which investigated the infiltration of drug gangs in the country's political and judicial system and at the time had resulted in some 30 arrests. She says the term narcopolitics is now applicable in Ecuador and is no longer a distant concept because we can see how criminal structures have used and rewarded our country's institutions to help them achieve their goals. And surely the response to this operation will be an escalation of violence. She was right. Now, here's Ecuadorian President Daniel Noboa recently talking about how judges in the country can be corrupt and even give assistance to gang leaders like Fabricio uh, Colón Pico.
5: <laughs>
1: Noboa says it's absurd that Colón Pico, that there was a judge that took him out of jail six times, All of these people will also be considered part of the terrorism. Will Freeman, do you want to respond to that about uh, this corruption in Ecuadorian government and the attempts to fight back even before the surge of violence?
5: Right. Well, I think it is important that we talk about the period before the surge in violence. So often, uh, I think this discussion focuses only on the last couple of years in Ecuador, assuming that narco corruption w- became a very serious problem when you saw the rise in violence. Actually, it was as much se- as a very serious problem going back years earlier. I think we need to talk about the presidency of Rafael Correa. Correa held office from 2007 to 2017. He was a charismatic populist. Uh, He and his party concentrated a great deal of power to the point that many observers, many Ecuadorians were worried about uh, being on the brink of losing their democracy. Mm -hmm. But also, and this is a a less told story, uh, there were signs that narco corruption was growing and growing under Correa's government, and it does not appear that he did enough to stop it. Some of his own uh, campaign team were implicated in narco-trafficking scandals and, and were revealed to have ties to known narco-traffickers. Uh, after that, Correa dismantled a special investigative unit of the police that was investigating these cases. He cut down cooperation with the DEA, which he saw as um, a sort of an imperialist intervention in Ecuador. Regardless, it left the country without the equipment it needed to monitor its airspace or its waters. And on top of this, uh, Correa doubled the prison population, creating the conditions of these overcrowded mega prisons, which have become, as Talía mentioned, strongholds for the gangs today. That's just the tip of the iceberg, but I say that because often, as I mentioned, this conversation uh, starts as if it was yesterday. In fact, narco-corruption has been growing in Ecuador for years. Now, after 2017, it's true that Correa's opponents known in Ecuador as the anti uh came into office. First, there was a president, Lenin Moreno, and more recently, Guillermo Lasso, both to the center, to the center-right. Now, uh, unfortunately, they did hardly any better than Correa. There were still mounting signs that uh, cartels and gangs were managing to co-opt, buy off, coerce cooperation from the military, from the Navy, from the police, from judges, Uh, but you saw Moreno and Lasso focus their efforts elsewhere. And in the backdrop of all this, we've seen such intense political polarization in Ecuador between these two bands, these two camps that I've been talking about, Mm -hmm. that I'd say until Noboa, until recently, we haven't seen uh, the country's political class wake up and say, you know what's more important than these political divisions? The fact that we're on the brink of becoming a narco state.
1: More in a moment. This is On point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, And today we are trying to understand more deeply what is happening in Ecuador, especially after a massive surge of violence and even political assassination over the past couple of weeks. Will Freeman is with us. He's a fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's in New York. And Talia Ponce joins us as well. She's a journalist in Ecuador and founder of Indomita Media. She collaborates also with The New York Times. She's in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Talia, help us understand um, some of the actions that um, the president has taken um, since this surge of, of violence and attacks, first of all, what has he asked that the military, the Ecuadorian military, do in what he's called an armed internal conflict?
4: Well, I think it's it's a very like unclear, and I think that's a very populist decision what he's doing because. Uh, it's unclear what what the militaries are going to do after these detentions and it also shows like a lack of real strategy like in you know like in the years to come because these people if we're going to have like more uh, people in the jails, jails that are already overcrowded they are going to be part of the system I was talking about before. You know that the system in which they are going to be part of maybe some more terrible things they were like before. There are people that are there for minor crimes and end up joining gangs, and I think that what Noboa is saying is um, somehow like getting closer. To Nayib Bukele's um, decisions, you know, in in El Salvador, that they they are um, going like against uh, human rights um, recommendations and dispositions, and there's no real strategy around this. Only curfews and military action, but no other thing. And at the same time, he's taking some decisions. As trying to level up the, the. Um, sorry, I, I forgot. The, it's the, okay.
1: Well, let me just jump in here and uh, describe a little bit taxes. more. Yeah, the taxes, yeah, taxes, taxes. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Well, when you mentioned El Salvador, this is a, a a story that is very much on the minds of many in Ecuador and people watching what's happening there, because uh, what Talia is talking about is that uh, over the past couple of Years, uh, the uh, the Salvadorian president has instituted a, instituted a major crackdown on uh, gangs there, which, uh, by some measures, has been very very successful. Uh, m- the government says murders have dropped by seventy percent in El Salvador. Vendors and shop owners, uh, many of them, report they no longer have to make uh, extortion payments to the gangs in El Salvador. But all that has come uh, because just in, what, uh, 2022, El Salvador jailed more than 66,000 people uh, mm-hmm. in this crackdown and now has the world's highest incarceration rate. Now, Will Freeman, when you hear President Naboa in Ecuador calling uh, for the military to, quote unquote, neutralize all the gangs or cartels in in Ecuador, do you sense that this is what he means, an El Salvadorian-style crackdown?
5: I think time will tell. Uh, Now, what was really unique about Bukele's crackdown was, as you mentioned, these mass incarcerations. I'm not sure how Noboa would pursue that in Ecuador, even if he wanted to. Uh, El Salvador had very particular gangs. It had gangs which which had developed over decades, which displayed signs of their affiliation in the form of very visible tattoos, which were uh, deeply embedded in certain neighborhoods. That's not to say that many innocent and unaffiliated people weren't also swept up in that crackdown. I believe that they were. Uh, But in all these features of the Salvadoran gangs uh, and the fact that they were not particularly wealthy by international standards, they weren't particularly well-armed, that made it pretty easy for the Salvadoran state, uh, once it had decided it didn't care about due process or human rights, to completely destroy them. Uh, In Ecuador, I think Nabal would have a much harder time doing that. One, there's less intelligence, there's less clarity around who belongs to the gangs, Two, I think the gangs have a deeper foothold, uh, more enclaves in the state itself. So uh, it's more likely that we'd see some police, some military, perhaps not actually uh, go after the gangs uh, full force or that we'd see information about anti-gang strategies leaked out. Um, and as of right now, you do not have control of the prisons in Ecuador, mm-hmm. which is perhaps the number one problem.
1: Okay. Okay. So Ecuadorian President Noboa has already just dismissed the idea that what he is attempting is a Salvadorian-style crackdown. And he really dismisses comparisons between him and um, El Salvador's authoritarian authoritarian president, Nayib Bukele. So I just want to play um, a little bit of what President Noboa has said. He was on CNN this week, uh, and he expressly said that El Salvador's crackdown is not the example he is looking to.
5: First, there's two different nations, two different realities, culturally, economically. I do believe in democracy. I do believe in, uh, in a country being united. Uh, we have our own style. We have our own way of, of governing in a democratic way. And we need to reestablish peace. And the moment that the people wish for me not to be here, I will gladly leave and go back to my family, go back to my businesses.
1: So that's Ecuador's President Daniel Noboa just this week, but nevertheless, there are many who are concerned that there are there could be very terrible re- repercussions for a military or militarized response to uh, the gangs in Ecuador right now. One of them is Jordana Timmerman. She's an Argentine journalist based in Buenos Aires, and she got an opinion piece. She's got an opinion piece in the British newspaper The Guardian recently. It's titled Ecuador is Copying El Salvador's War on Gangs, but it will only add to the spiral of violence.
3: A militarized response in the case of well-armed, well-organized and well-financed, and that is a key point, uh, organizations like the ones in Ecuador, which are drug trafficking organizations with international alliances with Mexican drug cartels, ups the ante and makes more violent response on their part more likely. It raises the stakes.
1: Mm. Nevertheless, Timmerman also says she believes that El Salvador is the model that Ecuador's government is following because El Salvador can say its crackdown is working. Tim Timmerman says Salvadorian President Bukele's method, as I mentioned before, put nearly 2% of the country's entire population in prison, And that seems to have cut down on gang violence.
3: This has been massively popular for that reason. But most debate about the Bukele method doesn't recognize the other elements behind the success, which include, according to several investigations, secret negotiations with gang leadership by the Bukele government and agreements that nobody is sure what they might be, but could involve the protection of the gang leadership. And increasingly... The mass detentions have always relied on arbitrary detentions that affect people who very possibly have nothing to do with gangs and are increasingly used as a crackdown on dissent.
1: Timmerman says there may be alternatives to a militarized response, such as targeting the financing of the gangs and targeting gang leadership. But those options may be less politically viable and less politically appealing. She now worries that these uh, the 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 negative circumstances or negative outcomes to a militarized response could happen in Ecuador because she's already looking at more than 1100 people having been arrested just in the span of Ecuador's state of emergency.
3: In the case of Ecuador, it seems that Noboa has gone several steps further. We see In the images, the army is distributing of prisoners in their underwear, kneeling on the prison floor with their hands behind their heads. A visual echo of El Salvador's um, propaganda or communication. Um, Everybody is rather watchful to see where this is going to go and what level of success it's going to have because public security is such a concern in other countries in the region as well.
1: That's Jordana Timmerman, journalist based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Now, Talia, I don't see so far, and correct me if I'm wrong, that President Naboa's declaration of neutralizing uh, the gangs or the current state of emergency has had an impact, a negative impact on popular support of him. I mean, how would you gauge or measure what Equ- the Ecuadorian people think about his current efforts?
4: Yeah, I actually think there's uh, surprisingly majoritarian support, you know, from the population. Uh, but but I think this should be like read, you know, carefully um, around his political intention, because uh, this this measurements he had taken, but also the announcement of the construction of new facilities in about ten months um, are, are going to be like closer to the end of his presidential period Uh, we we have to remember that we in Ecuador had a snap elections last year won by Novoa, and this means he is going to rule just 18 months and then we're going back to to new elections to a period of four years this happened because uh, ex-president a former president lasso uh, did something that we called uh, Muerte Cruzada that meant uh, or implied uh, he ending his period like before. So I think these decisions that Noboa had take and also what he's saying have like a political intention of maybe being reelected. And even though he has said something about this, like maybe I'm going back to my home after this. Uh, he also has like a lot of contradictions as we, we've we seen like in these short months.
1: Mm. Well, Will Freeman, um, when Jordana Timmerman said everybody in the region is watching this because security is such an issue, um, not only in Ecuador, but all of its neighbors as well, that of course brought to mind the biggest player in hemispheric politics and that is the United States. Now, since this is really driven by the drug trade, I just want to say an one obvious piece of the of the solution here is a reduction in consumption, but re- politically or regarding any influence the United States has, First of all, let's note that the United States has an extremely checkered history regarding its uh, the use of its influence in Latin America, across Latin America, right? Overthrowing leaders, interfering in elections, um, providing other kinds of actually positive support. But in terms of uh, helping countries crack down on drugs and violence, I mean, we had Operation Condor for a long time and vast sums of money. One could debate if it was successful or not. But is there anything the U.S. can do or that maybe would actually help benefit Ecuador's uh, internal efforts?
5: I think the U.S. and Europe importantly need to be involved. I'll I'll come to that second part in a moment. In terms of what the U.S. can do, um, first, I think this should just be elevated to be a higher priority issue. Uh, look, everyone's very concerned uh, domestically about the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. What I think doesn't get appreciated often is that Ecuadorians, have, despite coming from a smaller country in South America, have been among one of the largest groups arriving at the border. 107,000 encounters with Ecuadorians um, from U.S. Border and Customs. Uh, this is in fiscal year 2023 alone. Uh, Some months they've been second only to Venezuelans, uh, crossing through Panama's Darien Gap. So there already are repercussions. There are reasons that uh, politicians on both sides of the aisles, uh, lawmakers, White House, should be engaged uh, in Ecuador. And I'm happy to see that Southcom, for instance, um, is planning a trip to Ecuador over the next couple weeks, I think we're going to see more high-level engagement to come. But what really can the U.S. do? Well, I think, first of all, the root problem here is the narco-corruption we were discussing earlier. Until Ecuador's institutions become stronger and better at resisting the coercion and the bribes of uh, narco-trafficking groups and gangs, we're not going to see this problem fixed. Uh, So whatever the U.S. can do to help provide security to judges and prosecutors, to help train those judges and prosecutors, give them a sense that they will be safe if they take on these bold investigations. I think that's step one. Well, can I just jump step, in
1: here because sure. the Ecuadorian government itself is trying to do that, right? President Noboa has they a referendum that would, yes. if passed, uh, provide physical security for for that's, judges, that's right? right?
5: extra security for judges. I'm glad you bring up this referendum because before we move on, I do think that's important to discuss. It's not the case that Naboa is only pursuing a militarized approach here. He also has this very important referendum coming up, which in addition to the high security measures for judges you mentioned, could also bring on the table extradition. Going back to the U.S., the U.S. has helped countries like Colombia begin to uh, bend the curve, turn the tide in terms of violence by allowing uh, and by agreeing with Colombia to extradite some of its most dangerous criminals to the U.S. Uh, Ecuador has an extradition treaty, but going back to the years of Correa, that ex-president, um, Ecuador has also had a constitutional ban on actually using that treaty. So we're hoping to see, uh, and Noboa is hoping to see that, uh, that ban overturned. Hopefully then some of the most dangerous gang leaders like Fito, the one we discussed Mm -hmm. earlier, um, won't be ruling essentially from these criminal strongholds within Ecuador's jails. They'll actually be in the U.S. without the ability to keep conducting criminal operations on the outside.
1: Well, Will, we've just got uh, about a minute left. I wanted you to complete your thought about what uh, the U.S. or even the EU can do.
5: That's right. So, uh, you know, I think the other part of the puzzle, and this is Europe, which increasingly is consuming a lot of the cocaine moving through Ecuador. It's no longer primarily or largely a U.S. problem. Uh, there, I think Europe needs to get serious about its own port security. Just a couple and, uh, and issues of corruption in its ports. A couple weeks ago, the mayor of Amsterdam wrote an op-ed in the Guardian, arguing, in all seriousness, that the Netherlands risks becoming a narco state. That's how much violence corruption has increased in the ports in the Netherlands, but also in Belgium, in parts of France, in Spain as we're seeing European and Latin American criminal groups working ever more closely together and expanding distribution of drugs uh, like never before throughout Europe. Um, So I think that until Europe really takes on that problem in its ports, really turns its anti-corruption focus inward on those issues, we're also um, unlikely to see major improvements in Ecuador, sadly.
1: Mm, Well, with that, I'm afraid we're out of time. Will Freeman, fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations with us from New York. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Talia Ponce, journalist in Ecuador, founder of Indomita Media, and she works also with The New York Times, joining us from Guayaquil in Ecuador. Talia, thank you so much for joining us, and we really con- t- continue to hope for your, your safety um, as Ecuador con- is in the middle of this state of emergency. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.